0: Mental health startups raised $5.5 billion in 2021. So the question is what happens when our mental health is for sale? I'm Megan Cornish and this is Hot Commodity, the collision of mental health and tech. Quick ad disclaimer. I don't have any control over who advertises in my ad spots, but I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. As a marketer in the mental health space, I've heard good, bad, and ugly ads. If a mental health company pops up in these spaces, please look deeper at that company and use the links that we discuss in this show. And feel free to reach out and let me know what you find. This is episode two. How did we get here? Before we get started, I have a confession to make. This amazing interview has been hanging in the depths of my computer files for, let's say, more than three, but less than six months. My guest has been so kind and patient waiting for me to finish. It's 100% completely my fault. But to explain my less than ideal posting schedule, I just wanted to give you a quick peek at my life. And fair warning, I'm about to go all therapist on you. I'm a mom to a two-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. I'm the sole breadwinner while my husband's in clinicals. So in order of priority, our life goes like this. Kids, husband's school, my paying projects, my passion projects. And this podcast definitely qualifies as a passion project. I wasn't able to finish the editing when I first recorded this interview due to a slow sickness and germs that overtook our house in the winter time. And to be honest, the longer it took for us to get back to normal, the harder it was to feel motivated to edit this podcast. Does that ever happen to you? Suddenly it's not just about the task, it's about the task and the guilt. And you'd rather just ignore it than face the fact that you dropped the ball. So here's my solution, and it's a very acceptance and commitment based. I'm going to lean into the guilt a little bit. I feel bad even while I'm recording this, but I value Chris and his time, and I think this is valuable information that should be out in the world. So I'm going to push through the ick, and I'm going to make something worthwhile. So thank you, Chris, for your participation and your patience and your wisdom. I owe you one. Because things change so quickly, I'll do my best to drop in any updates that have happened in the month since we recorded this but the level of action shouldn't come as a surprise. It's hard to miss that there's a lot happening in the mental health tech space. All you have to do is scroll through your social media feed or listen to your favorite podcasts and see ads where mental health is front and center. Mental health used to be a primarily service provider-based industry, and now it's turned into a huge tech investor feeding frenzy. Of course, things have slowed down recently, but what industry hasn't slowed down? I really wanted to find out what forced all these changes in this industry. And how the changes are affecting the clinicians who actually provide the services, and what should those clinicians know if they want to stay savvy. So I scheduled an interview with my friend Chris Larson, who is a reporter over at Behavioral Health Business. I wanted to mention that Chris Larson is in no way related to Jay Larson, who I interviewed on the last episode, and that this is not a Larson-exclusive podcast. I love interviewing Chris because he's such a wealth of information, but I also had a head cold at the time of our chat, so I'll spare you having to listen to my side of the interview recording.
1: My name is Chris Larson. I'm a reporter for Behavioral Health Business. I've been doing this work for about 10 months, and just like the name of the publication suggests, we cover the business aspect of behavioral health.
0: Chris automatically explained his organization's business model, which is going to be a key issue in this and other episodes. Forgive me if I'm stating the obvious, but a business model is the mechanism by which a company makes money. Knowing how a company makes money can help us understand where conflicts are most likely to occur. And I think we need to normalize asking, how is this company making money and where might that cause conflicts?
1: The way that we make money in short is through selling advertising on our website, like most news organizations, but we really invest heavily and also succeed quite well in an events business as well, where the journalism that we're doing and the connections that we're making in the behavioral health space can come to life in you know, event venues and help facilitate th- the real life connections that we see potentially happening in the digital space. So in short, our business model is rising on the site. And then our other major business is business or source of revenue for our business is this events business.
0: When it comes to business models in the mental health tech space, no two companies are making money in exactly the same way. So Chris was happy to explain the different kinds of business models that dominate the industry right now.
1: So You have kind of two very large categories and buckets for these digital behavioral health companies. The first one is direct to consumer. These are your talk spaces and cerebrals of the world that put a lot of time and money into trying to make themselves known in the national market through digital uh, marketing. And the play there is to get as many people looking at your online presence and trying to convert them into paying customers. Then the other bucket is trying to work your way through the existing payer, employer, and you know government apparatuses or apparati, plural of, plural of apparatuses, whatever that is, okay. to get to patients that way. Because at the end of the day, big government payers and employers and through employers, commercial health plans actually pay for most healthcare costs in the United States today. And that's, The label that you would put on that second bucket is, you know, business to business or direct to enterprise or D2E, depending on your preferred nomenclature. If you just look at where people get health insurance coverage, the vast majority of it is through commercial health plans or employer backed plans, right? So if the biggest source of spending on healthcare overall is through these plans, it follows that at least a goodly portion of spending on behavioral health and, other, and specifically mental health services will come through those those avenues as well. So if the hope is ultimately to fundamentally shift where the revenue comes from for these companies, you would innately require an overhaul to the American payer system, and that's a that's a pretty big... That's a pretty big task. We have lead. It's worth many podcasts.
0: And it's a topic I hope to cover at some point, but not on this episode. I asked Chris how business models impact clinicians and which models seem to be most desirable for clinician quality of life and quality of care for clients.
1: So depending on the type of, of digital mental health company, you will have different advantages, but also different risks associated with those companies. For companies that want to try to employ or otherwise control the time of the therapist, you'll have very specific benefits around very consistent payment, either as a contractor or as a uh, W-2 employee. And if you're an employee, you'll get the opportunity to get all the benefits that are obligated to you as an employee, those being things like health benefits or Savings for retirement. And if that's what you're looking for, there are any number of digital mental health opportunities out there. Almost all of them are hiring right now. But if you're looking for something more to fill, you know, a hole in your schedule, it probably would be better for you to be looking at contract work where you can work about as much as you want and the company really doesn't totally control your time because you're a contractor. You ultimately employ yourself and you more or less lend your services while under under your employment contract. But where you can run into problems is as a potential employee, are getting these benefits, but you ultimately give up control over your work. If you're at a company, say, like a, a talk space, which has like this full-time national practice, you have to operate under the strictures of that company, regardless of your personal feelings. One of the things that has been newsworthy and that I've reported on is the company's shift to more strict and more highly elevated clinical hours where they literally have to be spending 35, I think believe it's 35 hours fact-checking, you can read my article, doing direct interactions with patients, that being on them, on the phone or on a video chat with them, responding to their messages and things like that. That caused a kerfuffle among their national provider practice because that's not in step with what would be considered typical or average in a brick-and-mortar setting where it's closer to, you know, 20, 25.
0: I did fact-check Chris's article, and he was
1: right. And then depending on severity and the type of work you're doing, it could be higher or lower. On the other side of this, you could find these digital... Uh, mental health companies or digital behavior health companies that don't really seek to control or employ. They really just want to act as platforms that more or less handle some type of administrative aspect of behavioral health. And there you're basically you do your own thing and whatever type of help you're getting from that platform, will be provided, but you'll probably be absent a lot of the support that you would otherwise get as an employee of that service. So, one of the one of the companies that comes to mind here are companies like Alma that will secure better you know, rates for a therapist if they see Alma patients, but ultimately, you know they have to just you you know just use a platform and more or less have the independence and the inherent risk that goes along with that.
0: It's wild that we're even talking about this, considering that just a few years ago, there were basically two options for therapists: community mental health of some kind or private practice. So I asked Chris, what happened to make the mental health industry blow up like we've seen in the last few
1: years? The tech industry saw a lot of opportunity in trying to provide mental health solutions well before the pandemic but they didn't really take off in the flashy way that we saw in the recent years until the onset of the pandemic at that point they were seeing that people weren't able to get into their providers in the way that they would want to they saw what was always there you know a worsening state of mental health in the united states coupled with increasing demand for services and they Learned that inherently the great value of behavioral health generally is in the relationship and being able to communicate with you know a provider, whether that is in addiction treatment, eating treatment disorders, more general you know therapy and psychiatry, that's what's valued. And they were able to use the inherent value of the internet and digital tools in connecting people and facilitating communication to you know to their advantage, right? So one of the reasons that we've seen these tech tools take off is because it checks off all of the major boxes a for what you want to see in in digital startups you know high demand likelihood of of a lot of growth really quickly but we also saw the opportunity to address a lot of the present challenges in the behavioral health market those being ease of access speed to access you know regional Provider distribution inequities. If you look at actually kind of the aggregate data, one can make the argument that the United States has enough mental health providers to meet present demand. The problem is that they're almost all there on the East Coast, uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast, you know, South and Midwestern markets struggle to find the appropriate professionals to do this kind of work.
0: So Chris identified high demand and limited supply as one of the driving forces for the market's growth. But we know from my last episode that venture capital funding seeks out businesses that may be able to scale, meaning they can take their business country or worldwide with relative ease and speed. So I asked Chris, what about the issues of mental health make solutions seem so scalable to these entrepreneurs and venture capitalists?
1: It's looking scalable because you're able to overcome the challenges of time, the challenges of geography. And the challenges, especially of, of geographic distribution by getting people connected via technology. If you're able to you know, set up a system that requires no travel, that, you know, that only really requires that they be able to you know, pay for the service and then have at least what is now very basic communications technology in their hands, they can get seen and get in front of a therapist. That's very easy to scale. And that value of just kind of being there and either, you know, employing clinicians to provide care or acting more as a facilitator and then trying to work in the spaces in between to make money is also just kind of an inherent model that's built in to businesses that operate through the internet or through other digital tech tools.
0: So companies are looking at this potential to integrate technology into mental health care, and they're thinking they can almost immediately increase the number of clients that therapists can see, which might make sense from the outside for people who have never had to sit through four consecutive emotionally exhausting therapy sessions. As an insider, I know the reasons most clinicians don't see more than 20 or 25 patients a week as less to do with trouble getting patients in the door and more to do with very human limitations and healthy boundary setting. Since Chris has a finger on the pulse of most players in the mental health field, I was dying to know, what are the things we clinicians should be keeping our eye on?
1: So th- I would label three potential areas of of major concern. I think the f- the first one is the ethos that has been adopted by so many tech companies generally, irrespective of mental health, that being of uh, the mantra of move fast and break things. That just doesn't work in healthcare. It never has, and it probably never will. Because at the end of the day, you are dealing with human lives. You're dealing with the health of brains here. You're not dealing with whether or not people are engaging for X amount of hours in a month or in a week, and you're not trying to facilitate a connection between inhuman content, like for a TikTok a Facebook or any other you know socially geared service that is Premised on levels of engagement, what we're talking about is much more serious, and the fallout if things go wrong, ultimately the worst thing that could happen is is a direct line between someone living and someone dying. So the stakes are a lot different.
0: Client well being is something we as therapists always have top of mind, but it's nice to hear someone else recognize and verbalize it.
1: the The second major concern that I would have is the viability of digital health solutions on their own. Right now, if you actually look at virtual only providers that have a lot of data out there publicly, I'm thinking specifically of companies like Talkspace and Teladoc. And Teladoc is the company that owns and, and facilitates BetterHelp. They pour just millions upon millions of dollars into marketing these tools and neither of these company, companies are profitable. One of the kind of more in one of the more interesting visuals that was described to me around um, you know, the digital health approach to spending a lot on marketing and hoping that the business model just kind of figures itself out came from an interview that I did with the founder and CEO of Project Healthy Mind. One of their goals is to fundamentally shift the market to be more friendly towards digital health markets because of all of the potential good that they could do in alleviating you know, speed to care and geographic distribution problems, we kind of need them to figure this out. And the way that he described it is we can't afford to have these startups and these incumbents just set big piles of money on fire for their marketing and just hope it pans out. So the inherent uh, viability of these markets is a major concern and of these models of the market is a major concern.
0: Did you get that? Just because companies have millions in investment money doesn't mean their business model is going to be viable. I agree with Chris. We want them to figure it out in a way that benefits everyone involved, but the jury's still out.
1: And then the, the, final, the final major concern that I would highlight with when it comes to digital behavioral health is the uncertainty that we have around medication management. You know, there's been a huge swath of the digital mental health space. I'm thinking that is built around managing uh, the medication for people in, in need. That's kind of what Cerebral's whole thing was. Like they, They're like, hey, we can get you connected with a prescriber in a matter of hours or days as opposed to a course of weeks. Now, that's landed them in a lot of trouble and they're under investigation by a grand jury in New York. However, there are other companies that are not in trouble and appear to be doing things more responsibly. I'm thinking more of the addiction treatment-specific digital health startups like your Ophelia Health, Bicycle Health, Boulder Care, They're giving a very valuable service to people who otherwise might not be able to access it through managing medication-assisted therapy, largely through buprenorphine, which is itself a controlled substance. And because we haven't seen a lot of movement on the federal front around clarifying the role of these specific types of providers and then just what the role of the Ryan Haight Act will be going forward in the post-COVID era, we don't know if these companies are really going to make it, at least not in the way that we understand them now where they're able to do everything that they can virtually.
0: This is where my slower than dial-up speed makes this interview a little dated. The FDA recently clarified the new rules and regulations they're going to suggest going forward to address the issue of medication management. And after you listen to Chris explain it here, you can learn more about that online.
1: Yeah, so the Ryan Haidt Act is an amendment to the Controlled Substances Act. The Controlled Substances Act is a much older piece of federal legislation that controls you know, what types of substances are allowed to be just kind of either freely available, prescribed by a doctor, and which substances, or gives the federal government the control to determine which substances can or cannot be, you know, out in the market. So I believe it was in 2008, the Ryan Haidt Act was passed to specifically shut down online pharmacies where people could just get online and just send emails to a prescriber and get whatever prescription they want if they were able to pay for it. And it's so titled because a young man by the name of Ryan Hay died from overdose because of access to these online pharmacies. So to be really, really reductive and miss out on a lot of nuance, the Ryan Haidt Act made it so that you had to be seen in person before you could get yourself a controlled substance prescription. And then I think you had to be seen at least once every two years after that. During the coronavirus pandemic, the federal government lifted that provision to increase the access that was being severely limited by social distancing provisions that were rolled out at the onset of the pandemic. Even though the onset of the, you know, the, onset of the pandemic is, is over and we're starting to potentially be getting out of the crisis mode of the pandemic, those exemptions are still in place, but they have enabled telehealth generally not just digital health, but telehealth all across the board, especially in behavioral health, where it seems to have a special home and a special place to be successful, it's still there and it's still operating. And there's a lot of uncertainty on what's going to happen on the federal front because there's the potential, because with no action, that these, we would be going straight back to a pre-COVID era for telehealth. And I don't, I don't think we can afford to do that.
0: So those are the three things Chris thinks we need to watch out for. The conflict between the mental health and startup ethos, the viability of digital health solutions and the issues around remote medication management. On the second issue, I just had to ask Chris, are there any companies that are already profitable?
1: That's hard, it's hard to answer because I don't know. There only There's only so many companies that are publicly traded where you could just, with a few keystrokes, pull up their balance sheet and see their quarterly performance. So I just, I don't know the answer to that question.
0: It's still hard for me to comprehend how a company could continue to do well without pulling a profit. But that's the magic of venture funding. At least for a time, it gives companies the ability to grow and gain traction without any profit. In theory, that can't last forever.
1: It depends on how long they're able to continue to raise capital from investors, either through like, getting money through selling equities and just getting selling selling shares in their company, which companies like TeleDoc have successfully been able to do for well over a decade. I mean, the company was founded, I think, back in in 2012, and they had an IPO, or they might have had. I can't remember the specific details, but they've, they've never been profitable, at least as a pu- public company, but they've been able to convince investors that given the right circumstances, there sh- could be a major shift to profitability. Um, investor appetite for their lack of profitability has waned over the last year or so, and their stock price has done nothing but plummet. But if, as long as you're able to raise money either through private or public equity offerings and, and selling uh, stakes in your company or able to do debt financing through banks or raising bonds and things like that, you can keep going. But you have to be able to convince people that you're worth it. And at some point, you just won't be able to to do that. When will that happen? I don't know. It's hard to say, even even for specific companies and knowing them very well, it's just hard to say what markets will or won't tolerate.
0: That's one of my biggest concerns in the industry right now. While the working for a tech company comes with clients, benefits, and lessen business risks, it doesn't yet offer the kind of job stability working for yourself or a small group practice does. Granted, startup life is incredibly exciting, and it can offer returns most clinicians can only dream of. But clinicians should know what they're getting into. Chris agrees that these startups can be risky for clinicians who just want to serve their clients in a stable environment. So he wants us to do our homework.
1: I think that. One of the more important things that you know, therapists really need to know is, is that these companies are knowable. Now, let me, let me kind of explain what I mean by that. You can f- figure out pretty quickly what these companies are about, what the pluses are, what the minuses are, what the good experiences of people have been, what the bad experiences of people have been, and you can make the appropriate calculus for yourself. The tools are out there and, they're pretty, and the information is pretty easy to find. I find that therapists as a community are very communicative. And if you have a question, you're going to be able to find an answer from a professional who is similarly situated from you. And that's going to be very easy to do either through social media, through your friends and your literal like real life network. So you can know what these risks are. You don't need to go in blind into any situation when it comes to working with a digital mental health company. Now if you're looking at working at startups that are new and just by the fact that they've only been around for a short amount of time you can't really know what they're about you run into more risk there but you also have a lot more upside there if you can get in on the ground on the ground floor of a startup for example and you have the appropriate education and experience you could be shifting from being a provider to actually being a leader of some of some kind and that has all kinds of you know career benefits you know that looks amazing on resumes. You could be getting paid a lot more. You could be making a strategic shift in that company now that you have this opportunity to lead as a clinician. But again, the risk is is there. Startups are inherently risky and you never know if you're going to get laid off any day.
0: I think that's a decision we all have to balance. What do we value in our career and what are we willing to risk? With the mental health crisis, though, I don't think there will be any shortage of demand for our skill set anytime soon. For my next episode, I'll be interviewing Stephen Hayes, who's founder of What If Ventures, a mental health-focused venture capital firm. But I'm not going to even schedule the interview until I know I have the bandwidth to follow through. And I'd also love to chat with therapists who've worked with some of these big tech firms. Even if you want to do it anonymously, reach out to me on my LinkedIn if you'd like to be featured.